Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. Not only is Bluehost Cloud our fastest web hosting available, but it's also built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hey, this is Jason Greenblatt. I have a special guest today, Amir Fakraba. Amir is an Iranian dissident, spent sounds like many years in Iranian prison as a political prisoner. Probably we could do a whole other podcast in and of itself about his time in prison. He's the Senate chairman of the National Iranian Congress, lives here in America in Texas, a passionate voice for the Iranian people against the Iranian regime. I think you'll find this fascinating, very important, very time sensitive given what's going on with the protests in Iran right now. Take a listen. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. I have a special guest here with me today, Amir Fakrava, right? Am I pronouncing that yes, right? that's correct. Yeah. Right. Uh, Amir, a lot going on in Iran now, a lot of very, very important things. Why don't we start by you just giving a brief background about yourself. You're in America now, but you're not from America. Tell my audience who you are. Um, my name is Amir Fakrava. Thank you for having me first, Jason. Um, uh, Amir Fakhrovar, called me Amir, and also known as uh, Siavash in Iran. Um, uh, Siavash is one of the um, our historic um, hero, hero in uh, Persian uh, culture. Uh, and uh, um, I was 16 when um, the, at the first time I was arrested by um, Iranian regime uh, for um, um, at that time, it was election in our high school, and I was uh, elected as the spokesperson of our high school. Then in the first speech, when I started to talk about the regime, that was not really political speech. I said, uh, why, why you are not using, I was, my, I was talking to the government and said, why you are not using the young, talented people more to fix the problems? And th- that was too strong for them. They arrested me. They sent me to solitary confinement. And it was my first experience of solitary confinement. And there, at the age of 16, I realized something is really wrong in this country. What did I say? And then, yeah, the fight was started then. Then uh, I went to uh, next year uh, or in two years, I went to uh, medical school. And my first speech at medical school, I uh, made fun of Supreme Leader, kind of. I said, yeah, probably we don't have that much freedom that Supreme Leader says. And that was huge for them. They um, arrested me. They sent me to um, prison. And uh, we we have been in a back and forth fight with the um, regime authorities inside the school. And then at the end, we ended up in court, in revolutionary court. And uh, I was uh, um, uh, charged for three years then. Uh, it was 1996. 
um, three years prison, and then they send me to exile from the northest part of uh, Iran, from Urmia uh, Medical School, to the southest part of Iran, to Bushehr uh, Medical School. And then uh, it was a lot of going to jail, coming out in between, and then um, kind of my uh, personality uh, was shaped in this um, um, fighting for freedom and democracy in my country. And then uh, they didn't let me to finish my medical school. I um, uh, was sent to Evin um, prison, uh, first to class prison, maximum security uh, as a, a special punishment. And I was in maximum security for 14 months. Uh, then uh, I wrote during those years a couple of books, which those books got several international awards and then I was my books was have been recognized then by the when I was still in prison I was recognized by international pen uh, and uh, uh, then Amnesty International released several statements Human Rights Watch and it was several documentary um, made uh, around my team and the fight we had over there the m most famous one was called Forbidden Iran and uh, uh, by uh, Jane Cocon, the Canadian journalist. And um, yeah, it was a lot of torture, a lot of um, solitary confinement. Right now, I'm, I'm trying to think about it, about those years. I was uh, five years and three months in prison. And still I had uh, probably four or five um, open cases in revolutionary court uh, with the death penalty on the top of my head to just wait for it. And then... I could uh, manage to come out of the country. Um, how did you manage? How did you get to the U.S.? I was I was in uh, Evin prison after maximum security, fourteen months of maximum security, with the, um, uh, some support from um, the friends who have been elected at the parliaments. They um, pushed the court to send me to the Evin prison, and. Then it's the notorious Evin prison, but think about it. I wanted to go to notorious one because I was in maximum security and I was the only political prisoner in maximum security as punishment. And then uh, I started law school at that time and uh, for, I was coming out of uh, prison uh, temporary uh, with bail uh, to, um, to for, for my um, um, uh, exams and uh, the law school exams and then uh, in one of those uh, days my father died in a very suspicious car accident he was young he was 51 years old and then um, then when I came out to uh, just manage the uh, funeral of my father uh, that was the time I had uh, some phone call from the people outside, specifically from um, Richard Pearl, uh, who have been at that time uh, the uh, kind of deputy defense ministry of the United States, the planner of Iraq war. Uh, and uh, Richard um, told me uh, that, uh, Amir, I know you just lost your father, but uh, you can consider me as uh, your godfather here in uh, United States. He helped me a lot. And then uh, for the final exam of law, law school, I didn't go back to prison. 
and I was out with the bail and I decided to manage to come out of the uh, country with the help of my friends. Uh, we could forge some documents and then I went to Dubai. Richard, Richard Pell came to Dubai and helped me to get visa very fast and come to Washington, D.C. That was 2006 and my journey was started in Washington, D.C. To make a long story short, I used all the media attention I had at that time to start a campaign called Iran Oil Sanctions. It was hard to talk about it even then because a lot of politicians in Washington, D.C. from the uh, Democrats, Republicans, they didn't like it. They were telling me, uh, even Richard Pearl himself said, Amir, uh, you are uh, just gambling with your political life. Uh, it's uh, the oil market will be destroyed. I said, Richard, no, it's just 2%. Iranian oil, it's not going to destroy the oil market. We have done a great research on that. And we said, look, but definitely the regimes, Iranian regimes, economy will be destroyed because um, 85 to 90% of their economy is based on selling oil. Then you should just forget about all other sanctions, just have focus on this one and the regime's um, uh, Economy will be the regime will be crushed, and it happened finally. We we campaigned for a decade for oil sanction, and it was not easy uh, to just go and do lobby. In uh, um, uh, probably I uh, I spoke with uh, almost two hundred congressmen and senators in at the Congress to convince them this is the uh, thing you should do. And then I went to Israel. I spoke at the. Um, Herzliya conference. I uh, spoke at the uh, Israeli parliament with some parliament member in, at the Knesset. And uh, um, then everywhere I said, just go for oil sanction. European parliament, uh, from, uh, the Italian parliament, uh, Finland parliament, German parliament, Canadian uh, parliament, UK parliament several times. And in all those speeches, I brought the attention to the oil sanctions. So I want to come back to the oil sanctions a little later in the interview because I also want to discuss them in the context of the JCPOA. Let's come forward now to 2022. A few days ago, Masa Amini died while in police custody. That has sparked uh, protests all around Iran. Tell us about these protests, how you see them unfolding. There are counter-protests that the government seems to be setting up just to sort of uh, show that they're in control or show that not everybody agrees that the regime should be overthrown. Tell us about the protests and where you see it going and why it's different this time, perhaps. First of all, let me give you the good news. The good news is uh, it's supposed the uh, counter protests from the regime side supposed to happen today, a couple of hours ago, but they failed. They couldn't bring the people out because millions of people are out in the street in more than 400 cities all over the country. It's unbelievable. These people, they are getting their directions from social medias. We are talking to them. Just right now, when I came on to talk uh, with you, for last 48 hours, I didn't sleep. It's me and some other um, opposition leaders. We are 24 hours. We are talking with the people, with the kids. We are just passing our experience to them, helping them. And this time is different. First of all, we had some experiences the same as this one. It was uh, July 9, 1999, the student uprising. It was not that big. Probably 800,000 people, they were out. And it was mainly in Tehran, in the capital city. And it was in Tabriz, two uh, big cities in Iran. 
And then after five days, regime could control it. Then the uh, green movement, the people, they were out for, um, for almost eight months. Every day they were coming out. But the problem with the green movement was the uh, reformists inside the country, they were saying, yeah, we are the leader of, they were claiming they are the leader of the green movement. And they didn't want that movement to go for the regime change. They didn't want it. And at the end, they have been trying to control uh, the protesters. Then um, in uh, when President Trump came to office, it was the new blood in Iran. The people, they felt finally somebody is there who care about Iranian people. Well, then um, that was January, if I'm not mistaken, January 2017. Uh, or or 18 January 2018 when uh, the uh, uh, protest was started in 101 cities in Iran and uh, the regime after two weeks could control it uh, but still that protest didn't have the actual leaders to support it we um, invited the people first to come out and I was on um, um, Sean Hannity's show when it started. And um, it's it's on YouTube. You can see it uh, when Sean Hannity told me, Amir, you uh, are one of the leaders of this protest in Iran. And Sean Hannity told me, Amir, uh, it's not going to happen. You want to do the revolution without any violence, without any uh, shooting gun from the protesters side to the regime side. And I said, uh, you know, Sean, we, are, we believe in uh, civil disobedience. We believed in that. And but that was the reason regime had the chance to control it. Then two years later, it was another protest. It was um, uh, November 2019. At that time, um, it was a bloodbath all over the country. In 48 hours, regime with the snipers, Osam Soleimani was still alive. Osam Soleimani hired the terrorists, the Hashto Shabi from Iraq the Hezbollah from Lebanon, uh, Houthis from Yemen, and uh, Fatimiyun from Afghanistan, Zainabiyun from Pakistan, all the terrorists. The Qasem Soleimani recruited all those terrorists to come to Iran and kill the kids in the street with snipers. In 48 hours, they killed 1,500 kids at least. And then the corona happened, the COVID-19. Then everything went down. Up. Then we came to two weeks ago when Mahsa Amini, we knew it's coming. We could see the people are very angry inside the country. They were waiting for a momentum to come out. And then Mahsa was killed. And it was a shock all over the country. She was not the first one who have been killed because of the same reason, because of the the um, uh, hijab, but uh, the headscarf. But this time, the people have been waiting for an excuse, a good excuse to come to street, which you can hear in their chants all over the country. They're saying, yeah, that was just an excuse. M Mahsa just uh, started the fire yeah. when she was not still, she was not even alive to see it. And right now, during last, this is tonight, is the seventh night. This time, the reformists, they are not leading it. 
This time, we have the experience of all those before. And this time, we don't believe in civil disobedience anymore. This time, we are attacking the police. We are attacking IRGCs in the street. We are attacking all the mullahs, their officers. Regime is totally lost. They couldn't, they can't believe that this time, for the first time, after 43 years, we have the upper hand. We are killing them. And you know, I noticed I noticed in the Canadian government statement, and I think even in the U.S. statement, they're issuing statements of support for peaceful protests. What's your message to them with statements it, like that? It's not peaceful protest. You know, they, they, their family members are not in the street in front of some animals who have the order from supreme leader, the crazy supreme leader, when we have seen three years ago. Supreme Leader gave order to Qasem Soleimani and easily in 48 hours, they killed 1,500 kids in the street. Those are, we have the, their names, their family members even, they, they cannot go to the media and talk about their kids. They cannot go to um, cry for their kids. And after we have seen all of this, we realized with the mullah's regime, it's not going to work. The civil, I'm teaching civil disobedience here in Texas. I'm teaching it. I'm teaching constitutional law. I'm teaching political crimes, civil disobedience. But civil disobedience will work with the country which can understand the civilization. You cannot go and um, just talk with the type of dictator who is easily killing hundreds of people in the street without any shame. It's not any civilization in the government side in Iran. We have the very well-educated Iranian. Look at Iranian history, the Persian empire, and what happened to us. Some crazy mullahs, they hijacked our country, and for, less, for more than four decades, they are in charge because we were too kind to them yeah let's talk about and another we don't want to be like that anymore and all the governments all around the world who want to ask us for peaceful protests i want to tell them please be quiet we don't need this type of advice we know how to fight with them with the mullahs let's talk about another crazy person a murderer a butcher the president raisi who just spoke at the un uh, you know, you mentioned Qasem Soleimani, the commander, the, the commander of the Quds Force, who was assassinated by the Trump, you know, under the Trump administration. Also, a butcher himself. He held up a picture of Qasem Soleimani when he gave his speech at the UN. How shameful is that? How disgusting? How abhorrent? What are your thoughts on that? You know, when Qasem Soleimani was killed, I made a hashtag called Qasem Kotlet. Do you know what's Kotlet? No, it's type of food, and uh, it's 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 called cutlet too, I guess. Oh, in, cutlet, yes, yes, like yeah. a chicken cutlet. Yeah, I called it this. This hashtag became uh, the trend. Qasem cutlet, just check it. Hashtag Qasem cutlet, and uh, the people they loved it when he was killed. The people in Iran, in Middle East, in Syria, for sure. Because Qasem Soleimani killed hundreds of thousands of people in Iran, in Iraq, 
in Afghanistan, in Yemen, in Syria, in Lebanon, everywhere. And that was one of the greatest job of President um, Trump to kill him. Specifically, this happened a couple of weeks after the bloodbath in Iran in November 19, uh, um, November 2019. When, when he was killed, it was celebration all over Iran. The people, they loved it. And right now, to having Qasem Soleimani's picture at the situation when the country is burning 400 cities, the people are out every night. They're saying death to dictator, death to Khamenei, death to Raisi, death to Islamic Republic of Iran. And in this shameful situation for Raisi, how dare he could go there, lecture the uh, free world about the, how to govern and bring up the photo of Qasem Kotlet. And, you know, right now, the people, they photoshopped the Qasem Soleimani's uh, photo. They just removed it and put the, the cutlet there and said, oh, yeah, that was a food recipe, probably. The uh, rice he was showing to the world. But anyway, that was shameful. And uh, it's, it's, we, we are, we are, um, uh, facing the history. It's one of the greatest revolution, the real revolution, because in my belief, you know, in my book called Comrade Ayatollah, which have been sold 3 million copies in Iran, this book came out seven years ago. And I found a lot of documents that Iranian revolution was not a revolution in 1979. It was a coup d'etat, coup d'etat designed by KGB. It's 700 pages of documents which shows Iranian Supreme Leader himself for four years, since 1964 to 1968, he was at the um, spy training center of KGB in Moscow, Patris Lumumba University, among with several um, Iranian mullahs who are in power right now, and uh, um, also with uh, Mahmoud Abbas. He was there too. He was graduated from there, you know? 1979 was not a revolution. It was a coup d'etat, but everybody wrongly, they are calling it revolution because they didn't have these facts and documents. The English version of book is coming out. It just translated and it will come out soon. And that was not a revolution, but this one we are facing right now, it's a real revolution, the greatest revolution in Middle East, which will cause and fix a lot of problems in that area. We so want to be, so let's talk we want to be friend. Let's okay. talk about that. So let's assume their success. Where do you see the relationship between Iran and Israel and Iran and the Gulf countries, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, UAE, etc.? You know, in, in my organization, National Iranian Congress, um, our mission has three parts. And one of it is we want to be friend and allies with the world, specifically with our neighbors, all Arab countries around. Why even we should be in fight with them? Why? And specifically with Israel. Now, Israelis, they it, culturally, we are very close to each other, Iranians and the Israelis. 
in Middle East. You cannot find any other nations that close to the Israelis. And we love Israel. We, the people of Iran. We, I'm talking about more than in our surveys, more than 97% of the country right now, they are in fight with this regime. We are working for the regime change inside the country. We are just running the revolution over there. And all of us, we don't care what the mullahs, crazy mullahs, they are saying about Israel. We, the Iranian people, we love Israel. We love United States. We want to be the great friend with Israel and United States again. We want to have the um, Israel's embassy in Tehran and Tehran's embassy in Israel again, probably side by side by American embassy in Israel. And it's, it's not any reason to be um, the enemy of each other. Why? And in this book, I found a lot of documents that Iran is enemy of Israel because Russia wanted that. And Russians' minions, Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei, he is just running Russians' show. We don't have any problem with Israelis. Well, we're going to have to read it when it comes out in English. Let me ask you about the JCPOA. Uh, well, maybe not the JCPOA, JCPOA version 2.0, but shorter and weaker. What's your advice to President Biden about the JCPOA, and, and in particular to the Europeans who were hiding behind, who were doing the so-called negotiations? I mean, right now it looks like nothing's going to happen, but it'll probably come up again. On behalf of Iranian people, I want to strongly um, tell them, tell Biden and Emmanuel Macron and all the European leaders who are talking with this regime, I want to tell them how dare even you can talk with this regime, the regime who has the blood of Iranian young kids in their hand, in the Supreme Leader's hand, Raisi's hand, and all the regime authorities. And how dare you can talk even with them, with the serial murderers? It's a shame. And specifically, this regime who can kill the teenage kids in street with snipers hire the um, terrorists the foreigners to come and kill Iranian people in street in 200 cities the thing happened literally happened in November 2019 when this regime is doing that how dare you want to help them to have access to nuclear bomb do you know what they can do with that what the hell they can make in entire Middle East, Israel, Europe, even United States? Do you know what type of regime we are talking about? The regime, even they are trying to kill us here in United States. I had a, a briefing by FBI two weeks ago. They told me one of um, IRGC's um, official members, Shahram Pursafi, who is right now on wanted list by FBI, the person, the same person who had planned to kill uh, John Bolton and Mike Pompeo. His Iranian target was Amir Fakhrover in Houston, Texas. FBI informed me and said, you can talk with the media about it. And this regime, which is coming to United States to kill the American officials, former officials, and you want to give them a gift? The so, let me, so let me ask you this, because I get this question a lot. I want to hear it from you. 
What is it about the American administration, this one, the Obama administration, and the Europeans? Is it that we're naive, we're stupid, we don't understand what's going on? Why do you think we're so desperate to get this deal done? It's, it's about some crazy people, like the crazy ideologies, like um, Rob Molly, Robert Molly, before the start of the uh, JCPOA number one, in, uh, before they, they are saying they signed it, nobody signed anything really, but it, that was 2015. In 2014, when Rob Molly even was not part of Obama government at that time, he was hired by Iranian regime in Washington, D.C. to draft this deal for Iranian regime, the JCPOA. And um, then during the Biden administration, Rob Mali officially became the Iran envoy. JCPOA is his baby. He's just trying to save his baby. And he's crazy enough to think you just Google his interviews about the Hamas, about Hezbollah, about IRGC. He says, you know what? These people, they um, uh, believe is different than us. We should have respect for it. No, you cannot have respect for the terrorists' vision. And this type of people, Rob Molly, sitting at that position, as the Iran envoy at the uh, Biden administration, this is a problem. Iranian influence in U.S. administration right now. I listed the several people who are um, working for the Iranian lobby group in Washington, D.C. One of them is called NIAC, National Iranian American Council. And this lobby group is working for Iranian regime and at the same time, right now, they send a lot of their members to the White House, to the State Department, and to a lot of um, official places in Washington, D.C. It's influence of Iranian regime, which is pushing forward this so-called crazy, dangerous deal called JCPOA 2.0 or whatever they want to call it. They should be very careful about it, what they are doing. So this is a fast-moving story now with the protests, but I have two last questions to you. Um, CNN's Christiana Amanpour canceled an interview with the president, Raisi, because he insisted she wear a headscarf. Was that the right move, wrong move, and why? Um, you know, uh, uh, Christiana Amanpour have been in Iran talking with these mullahs with pleasure, and uh, she had all the time a lot of respect for them, which... Never we, the Iranian people, we could understand it, why she's doing that. And uh, then this time, uh, because that was not the first time for her to have the hijab, to talk with the Iranian uh, regime officials. This time, uh, she shouldn't cancel it. She should talk. She could have for one more time her hijab. Who cares? But she could talk with him about everybody he killed, about the protest, ongoing protest in Iran, about Mahsa Amini. But if you are asking me, CNN, they were looking for an excuse to cancel this interview to help Raisi. She should cancel. She, she should not cancel him. She should just punch him as strong as 
she could, but it was another failure by CNN. What can I say? Last question, and this to me is actually the most important question I'm going to ask you. What do you want to tell the world about what they could do to help? Iran, as you said, and I say this too, the Iranian people, their lives have been hijacked for decades, right? And there have been a few times when maybe they thought things would change. You feel passionate that this time it's different. What's your message to the world? When I came to the United States in 2006, at the first testimony at the Homeland Security Committee in the Senate, I said, we don't want war. We don't need war. We don't need troops from United States, from Israel, from anywhere. We have the troops inside Iran. Just, just go and look at my speech then. I said, millions of Iranian kids in the street, they hate this regime. They will come out. We will change this regime. Just we need support from the world. We need the world to cut their relationship with this regime. It doesn't make sense when you are facing a regime. It's, it's, it's even worse than Taliban in Afghanistan. When you are not recogni recognizing Taliban, why you are recognizing Iranian mullahs regime? It's two mullahs regime. Why you are even dealing with them? Why you are inviting them, the European leaders or the um, Biden administration? Why you are talking with them? You are giving them legitimacy. You should not do that. The world, international community, in support of Iranian people, should cut their relationship totally with the Islamic regime of Iran. And instead, they should support the very brave young girls and boys in the street in Iran who are fighting with the regime, who are chanting death to the dictator, death to Khamenei. And um, this is the time for the world to um, just do the right move after 43 years to hear Iranian people's voice. We never supported mullahs. Never, ever. That was a coup d'etat by Russians in 1979. And we were stuck there with these crazy mullahs small group of fanatic mullahs. They are ruling the country, the great country of Iran. We need support from the world to hear us, to give legitimacy to Iranian people who are fighting with the regime, not giving legitimacy to the regime who are killing the Iranian people. Amir, thank you for joining me. Thanks for sharing your story, but more importantly, thanks for sharing the story of Iranian people and let's hope that their voice is heard they're certainly risking a lot. They're very brave. They're very courageous. And hopefully we'll see some great things coming for the people of Iran very soon. Thank you. Thank you, Jason, for having me and looking forward to be friend. Indeed. Iran be has been friend with Israel and United States. The best friends Amen. forever. Thank Amen. you. Wow, Amir is really passionate about the Iranian people, about Iran, about where Iran should go. He sees a completely different relationship between Iran and Israel, Iran and its Arab neighbors. Very, very, very against the regime. Agrees with me that the people of Iran, their lives have been hijacked for decades. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you take to heart his plea at the end of the interview about what people could do to support Iranian voices. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek.